following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. And we've been looking at just some of the things that we do on a Sunday morning and what they mean, what their significance is, unpacking those. I'm just trying to understand them a little bit more deeply. So a couple of weeks ago, we looked at singing and why we sing, why we bother singing these songs in church. And then last week, we talked about preaching. That was fun, wasn't it? That was like an out-of-body experience for me, preaching about preaching. Uh, and so we looked at what, what is the purpose and function of biblical preaching um, to sustain the life of a church. And this morning, we're going to finish off this series talking about communion. Uh, also called the Lord's Supper. Some of you might know it by that name. Also called the Eucharist. Some of you might know it by that name. If you have more of an Anglican or a Catholic background, you might know it as the Eucharist. It goes by various names. But we, in our our, uh, community here at Shaw, we take this, we do this every Sunday. It's just part of gathering together. At some point in the service, and because we've got a big room here, the way we do it these days is we get up and we go to a table Uh, It's not quite as fancy as this table, but I've just got this here to help us conceptualize the meal. Uh, And we take a little wafer, or sometimes if you're lucky, it's a piece of bread, and a little cup of grape juice. And we celebrate this thing called the Lord's Supper. So we want to talk about this and what its significance is, but I want to start by just doing a little experiment here, a little exercise to get us going. One of the things that I love about Shaw is that we are a church of people from many backgrounds, and, and those of you that have had some kind of a church background come from many different denominations. And so what I want you to do on the count of three is I want you to yell out, if you have a church background, if you belong to some denomination at some point in time, whether it's Brethren, Baptist, Anglican, Pentecostal, whatever, Catholic, um, I want you to yell it out, okay, on the count of three. And if, if, you, don't, if you don't have a church background, just you don't need to say anything, or you could just yell out nothing, whatever you want to do. Um, and we're just going to see, just going to just a little social experiment here, okay? Ready? 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 Here we go. One, two, three. There's quite a lot of Salvation Army going on there. It just takes longer to say than everything else is the thing. Yeah. So this is one of the, one of the great things about Shaw. We're a real melting pot of people. And uh, there's a real unity and diversity, I think, among our community. And that means that there's certain things that we do as a church where we have different past experiences in other churches, some of us, and we bring those to this. And so we have different approaches and perspectives and ways of doing these things. One of those things is communion. Uh, we have different ways. I mean, some of you, we do this weekly here at Shaw, but some of you may, be, may come from traditions where communion is observed once a month, uh, sometimes once a quarter, uh, sometimes not at all if you're from a Salvation Army background. Uh, you, may have, you may be used to going up to the front to receive the Lord's Supper, sometimes from a particular person, getting it from a priest or a vicar. Uh, you may be used to having some real wine in the communion cups. Anyone had real port wine? In the communion cup, yeah, that's the real stuff right there, right? If it was good enough for Jesus, come on. So now you fast forward 1,500 years and you get to this point where Jesus is sharing the Passover meal with his disciples in Jerusalem. And by the first century, this meal had taken on an extra significance because Jewish people were now celebrating this meal within the Roman Empire which was an oppressive and a brutal regime. And there's a certain irony to that that here are these Jewish men celebrating a meal which is really associated with freedom and liberation. 
And they're celebrating it with a Roman garrison stationed down the road. They're an occupied people. They were an oppressed people, and yet they're celebrating this freedom meal. And so Passover became this Jewish rallying cry for freedom in the midst of Roman occupation and Roman power. It was often a time, Passover week was often a time during the first century when tempers flared and riots happened and hostilities brewed and politics was messy because the Jewish people were longing for that same kind of freedom that God once showed them by leading them out of Egypt. And they were longing for God to come and do it again. So Jesus sits down with his disciples and he, Jesus is really acting as the, as the father of a family. Passover was generally shared in families. So Jesus is taking the role of the, the family father and he's guiding his disciples through this meal. And there's a very set formula with Passover. There's very set things you say, very set things you do. It all happens in a very prescriptive order. So Jesus would have led his friends through this meal and then he gets to the bread. And when you take the bread, you're supposed to say a certain thing. You're supposed to pray. The words are all there. Everybody knew them. It's a prayer asking and thanking God for his blessing. But Jesus doesn't use those words. At this point, Jesus goes off script and he says this in verse 26. Take and eat. This is my body. And then Jesus takes the cup. He takes this glass of wine. It would have been one of several glasses of wine that were part of this meal and he takes the cup. We don't know exactly which cup it was, which order it, it happened in. But again, there's a very prescriptive formula and a certain prayer that you would pray at this point. But Jesus doesn't pray that prayer. Instead, he says this in verse 27. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus' disciples are wondering, what, what's Jesus doing here? He's, he's going off message. He's gone off script. Does he not know the words? What's happened? What Jesus is doing, of course, is placing himself at the center of this meal. He's placing himself at the center of the Passover meal. And he's showing them the way that this great story, what this meal represents, the Passover story, it all points to him. He's showing them that the whole thing is fulfilled in him. He's basically saying to his disciples, I am the Passover. I am the true Passover lamb. I'm the lamb whose blood has been spilled, whose body has been broken, whose bones have been crushed or will be at least the next day. I'm that Passover lamb and my blood is going to become the means of your salvation. Just like that lamb was a means by which God saved his people in the Old Testament. Now Jesus is saying, my blood will be the means through which you are liberated and saved in the ultimate sense. Those who belong to Jesus, those who are united to him, God's judgment passes over them and they are spared. But those who don't belong to Jesus, who don't have that lamb's blood in a sense in their life, who are not united to the death of Jesus, they are not spared from the judgment of God. God's judgment does not pass over their home. And so Jesus is putting himself right in the middle of this great long story. And he's saying this always pointed towards me because he wants his disciples that next day, very next day when Jesus was actually crucified, he wanted them to look at him on the cross, look at him bleeding, suffering, dying. And he wanted them to think Passover, Passover lamb. This is how God ordained it. God could have ordained for Jesus to be crucified at any point in the year, any point in the Jewish calendar. Why Passover? 
Why did this all happen in Passover week? Because it's the perfect story to show what Jesus' death accomplishes. That he is the Passover lamb and he brings the great story of Israel to its climax and its fulfillment. And Jesus wanted his disciples to see it and to interpret it that way. So Jewish families to this day, when they take the wine and the bread as part of Passover, they are looking back. They are looking back to the Exodus event. And as Christians, when we take the cup and the bread, we are looking back. But we're not just looking back to the cross. This is so vital. We're looking back to the Exodus event as well. Because this is a Passover meal. This is what we're doing every Sunday. We're taking a Passover meal together. I think this dimension of communion somehow is lost on so many people today. This is a Passover celebration. It's a deeply rooted Jewish tradition that we are now grafted into through Christ. So as you take this, we're not just thinking back 2,000 years to the cross. We're thinking back 3,500 years to the Exodus. And we're seeing that Passover lamb. And then we're thinking about the way that Jesus fulfills that story as the true Passover lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. So Passover is a way for us to keep alive the memory of Christ as our Passover lamb. To remember his sacrifice on the cross, yes, but to remember that as the fulfillment of an even longer story. So in communion and the Lord's Supper, we celebrate the past. We remember Christ, our Passover lamb. Our minds and hearts go back to the cross, back to the Exodus. But that's not all. There's a second dimension of Passover and the Lord's Supper that Jesus brings out. Have another look at verse 29. Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. What's he doing here? He's pointing his disciples forward now, isn't he? He's lifting up their eyes and he's saying, I want you to think about that day that's coming when I return and we share a great banquet together as disciples. And when Jesus points his disciples forward to that day, he's actually picking up on on, on an image from the past, an image of the prophets. See, when the prophets of Israel pictured the kingdom of God, when they thought about God's kingdom coming, when God would step in and redeem and bring shalom, bring peace to the world and renew his people, one of the images that the prophets used was a banquet. That day when God sets up his kingdom on earth is going to be like a great banquet. Here's the way Isaiah talks about it in Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all the peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. There's this image of a banquet where there's ample food and ample beverages to go around because it's an image of celebration, right? Food and wine. It's an image of partying. It's an image of of a great feast, a great banquet. God's going to spread a table and all people, all nations are invited to the table. That's the image. Jesus is picking up on that image. The New Testament keeps on picking up on that image. You get right through to the book of Revelation and it says, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's like that day Jesus returns, it's going to be a great wedding reception where there's an endless buffet, there's unlimited bar tab. It's just going to be this banquet. It's going to be this celebration when Christ and His church are united. You know those times. Have you had that experience where you, maybe it's a wedding, but you're just sitting down. It's just a great feast. And you're surrounded by people that you love and who love you. 
and you're just having a great time. You're eating, you're drinking, and you just feel like this is as good as it gets. That's just a, a, a glimpse of what that day is going to be like when Jesus returns. There is going to be a messianic banquet like we can't even imagine. And Jesus is saying, when you take these elements, you take this little cup of juice, you take this little measly little piece of bread, it's like an entree. It's like an appetizer. What's a good appetizer supposed to do? Wet your appetite, right? For the main course. That's what it should do. I know it's just a wafer. They don't even come in different flavors, I, th I don't think, these wafers. They're just plain old wafers. But they are an entree of the great banquet that is to come. And when you taste that wafer and you take that cup of juice on your lips, it should stir in you the deepest longing for Christ to return. And you should find yourself saying, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, because Jesus has said, I'm not going to drink of this fruit of the vine again until we taste it anew in the kingdom of God. When the voice from the throne says, I'm making all things new, when there is no more pain, no more heartache, no more death, no more suffering, no more tears, no more heaviness of heart, when God will wipe every tear from every human eye, this meal points us to that day. So we take it in anticipation of that day because every time we share communion here at Shore is one less time before Jesus returns. And we shouldn't just be thinking back to the cross and to the Exodus. We should be thinking on to glory. We should be thinking on to new creation. We should be taking this and saying, your kingdom come, Lord. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we should be picturing that day when the Lord's prayer will finally be answered because that day is coming. So communion is about remembering and celebrating the past, but it is also equally about anticipating the future and stirring within us a longing for Christ to return and bring about the fullness of his kingdom. We've got a taste of it in the present, but we long for the fullness of the kingdom when Christ returns. But there's more. There's a third dimension to the Lord's Supper. Come back again and look at this key verse in, in verse 26, this key statement that Jesus says here. Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Now, if you listen really carefully here, you may just hear an echo of a very early biblical story in those words. When is the first time in the Bible that the words take and eat are used together? Genesis 3, story of the fall, story of humanity's rebellion. God said to Adam and Eve, you can eat from the fruit of the tree of any, any tree in the garden, but not that one, not the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. But here's what humanity does. Genesis 3 verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And that was the beginning of humanity's downfall. That was the beginning of sin entering the world and disrupting God's good creation, wreaking havoc on what God had made. That was the beginning of sin. That was the beginning of humanity being ruptured, his relationship with God being ruptured. And here's what one commentator says about that verse in Genesis 3. So simple an act, so hard its undoing, 
God will taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation. He's connecting that verse in Genesis 3 all the way through to Matthew 26 and saying those verbs take and eat in Genesis 3, they were verbs of rebellion. They were words of sin. They were words of condemnation. They marked the beginning of paradise lost for humanity. But on the lips of Jesus, these words become verbs of salvation. They become verbs of grace. Jesus is undoing the effects of sin. He's undoing the effects of the curse. Jesus is offering grace where there has only been condemnation. He's offering life where there's been death. He's offering light where there's been darkness. He's offering himself in the present to his disciples. Take and eat. He is rolling forward his kingdom and he is pushing back the kingdom of darkness in which humanity has been enslaved up to this point. Take and eat. And just as Jesus sat among his disciples and said to them, take and eat. This is my body. This is my blood. Jesus stands before us today and he says those same words to us. He says to us in the present, not just remembering the past, but in the present, Christ says to us, take and eat. This is my body. This is my blood broken for you, shed for you. Christ is here with us as we take this meal together with him. He's not physically with us. He's not physically present with us in the same way he was with his disciples. Obviously, this is a different scenario. But he is present with us by his spirit, isn't he? He is powerfully present with us. Jesus is here. He's here with us. He is here in a special way as we gather together. And Christ is present with us in a special way at the Lord's Supper. Christ is present with us in a unique way at the Lord's Supper that is different to the ways He's present with us elsewhere. Jesus is always with you. If you're a Christian, you've got the Holy Spirit. Christ is is filling you. He's filling our church. But there is something special about the Lord's Supper. This is how God intended it to be. There There is a special time when Christ is present with us in the bread and wine in a way that he is not at other times. It is a special and a unique presence. Now, I want to be careful here because I'm not suggesting that the body and blood of Jesus, that these elements literally become the body and blood of Jesus. You may have heard that teaching before. That I think that presses Jesus' words too literally, where Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood. He's not literally saying that these emblems turn into his body and his blood. But although Jesus is not physically present in these emblems, he is spiritually present through this meal in a powerful way. His presence, His grace works through this meal into our lives, into our church in a powerful and a unique way. Not just a past remembrance, but a present. Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians as a participating. Those who share the meal are participating in the body and the blood of Christ. Not just in the past, but in the present. We are participating in something. That's why we call it a holy communion. That's what's going on when we take this meal. It is a holy communion between you and Jesus. Jesus is the one who invites us to the table. He invites us to come. See, so often we come to this meal, we make it about us. 
We make it, this is an emblem of my faith. This is a symbol of my faith. This is a gesture of what I believe. And that's part of it. That's part of it. But that's not the whole picture. Jesus, this is his table. This is his meal. This is his time. That's why we call it the Lord's Supper. It's not the church's supper. It's the Lord's Supper. Jesus presides over this meal. And every week, he's standing at the table, inviting you to come. And as you come to the table and you take the bread, you take the juice, you are receiving them as from Jesus himself. And as you take them into your system, as you ingest these elements, you are internalizing the grace of God in a fresh way, in a real way. Yes, you've already received God's grace if you're a Christian, but his mercies are new every morning. And what a beautiful way to demonstrate that, that we actually take food and as we metabolize this food into our system, we are metabolizing the grace of God all over again. We are drinking the grace of God. We are feasting on the grace of God. This is one of the ways in which Christ reaches out to us and allows himself to become present in our lives and help us internalize God's grace at a deeper level. It's so hard to get God's grace really deeply into the fiber of our being. This is one of the ways that it happens. This is one of the times and the places that Jesus uses to seal his grace on your heart, to draw you, to call you, to shape you to form you and press his love and his grace and his mercy afresh into your heart as we take this meal every week. It's a special thing. It's a unique thing. This is how Jesus intended it to be. So in this context of just thinking about the present dimension of communion, it's a past celebration. It's a future anticipation. It's a present encounter with the grace of God. As we think about that, I want to just talk for a minute about the relationship between children and communion. This is something that our staff team have been talking about recently, just wrestling with this issue. And it's not an easy one, to be honest, to wrestle with. From time to time, we have communion already in Boost. We have a way for kids to experience and take communion if they choose to. We are looking at implementing that in Grapple, from time to time offering to our intermediates if they want to take communion. So it's good to address this. I think it's good just to speak into this. And I'm very aware that there will be differences and there'll be different perspectives, and that's absolutely fine. We respect that. We completely appreciate that. For me, as I was growing up, I very strongly associated communion with baptism. So for me, communion was something that you did after you are baptized as a believer. There's a very strong association between taking communion and that, that commitment of faith and baptism. And I think that, I mean, I was baptized at 14, and I think it was the very next Sunday that I sat in church and took communion for the first time. And that was, that's my experience. That, that may be yours. You may have that approach. That's absolutely fine. As I've journeyed with this, my understanding of communion, I think, has been enlarged a little bit by thinking about not just the past remembrance, but also the present dimension of communion and the future dimension of communion. And so I just want to raise a couple of questions for you to think about, particularly if you are parents of young kids. Very easily, I think we see communion as something that should happen once a child has made a faith commitment that is definitive. Once they've prayed the certain prayer or they've had a definite conversion experience or they've been baptized. And so communion kind of becomes like the finish line. Once you've done that, then you can take communion. But if it's true that communion is not just past remembrance, but also a present means by which Christ works. And if it's true that communion is not just about us doing something, but it's about what Jesus is doing in this time. 
Communion is something that he is doing in us. Then is it possible that communion could be part of the faith formation of your child? Not just something they do when they get to the finish line, so to speak. Is it possible that communion could be part of the journey of bringing your child to that place where, Lord willing, they make that definitive commitment? But rather than seeing the Lord's Supper as the end, could you see it as part of the means? Part of the way by which Christ might work in their heart, might shape them, might sow seeds of faith and seeds of grace. If this really is a special time and place, if it really is a means of grace by which Jesus works, could it be part of the way in which Christ reaches out to your child and draws and calls and shapes their heart? Now, I know there's questions about this, and you've maybe got a picture in your mind of it becoming an absolutely chaotic racket. Everyone's take, kids are taking communion. We're going to start offering it to babies. Is the floor going to be full of crumbs? What's going to happen? This could just get out of control. And I'm not at all advocating that. I'm not advocating chaos. I know that the Lord's Supper can be abused. The Bible warns against that. I know that it can be done in a way that is too casual and that doesn't sit with the weightiness of what is happening. I fully appreciate that. But I want to suggest to you, parents, if you're open to it, could it be that in a controlled environment, could it be that with good guidance and with good learning wrapped around it, with explanation done appropriately, done sensitively, could this be part of your child's spiritual formation? Could it be part of them moving towards that commitment to Christ? You may think so, you may not. You may, that may not, just not resonate with you, and that's fine. I would encourage you, if nothing else, and I'm, let me just speak for a minute to those of you mums and dads of young kids, I would encourage you to talk about this together as parents, first of all. Talk about your experience of communion growing up. What was it like? You may be coming at this thing from totally different angles. Share this together. See if you can come to some agreed perspective or agreed approach to how you are going to deal with this with your children, whether or not you decide to offer it or to one and not the other, however it works. But get on the same page and make a plan. I would encourage you to talk about it with your children, whether or not you take that step of offering it to your children. Talk about the Lord's Supper. It's part of the biblical story, right? It's right there in Scripture. It's a wonderful, wonderfully rich story in Scripture that draws past, present, and future together. It'll help them understand Jesus. So talk to them about this part of the Bible. And then if you are open to taking a first step, one way in which I would suggest you could do this is to share communion together as a family in your own home. It's fine to do that. It doesn't just have to be here. There's nothing special about this place. You could share communion together as a family. Some of our life groups from time to time have shared communion together. We can do this in smaller huddles of people. So you might want to, as a first step, share the Lord's Supper in a family gathering. That way, you completely control the environment you can put all the explanation and the teaching and the praying and the reading the Bible around that. You can guide your kids through it, talk to them about it. And that may be then a first step for you in seeing where they're at and seeing what all this means. And then when you come into these contexts, and there'll be times when kids are in for communion in these services because we may have it earlier in the service. There'll be times where maybe communion's offered in boost or it's offered in grapple. And then your kids will come into that environment with more of an awareness of what's going on. You'll have equipped them for it. You may be able to be part of that event or maybe their teacher or leader is uh, in Boost or Grapple and, and you will just have much more of an ability to shape that before they get to that moment. And let me say too, if, if you're not going to take that step of offering communion to your kids, that's absolutely fine and they will not be made to feel excluded in any way if they don't take communion. What I'm simply trying to do is raise some questions for you to think about, 
think about his parents, think about his families, wrestle with these things. You'll have a particular understanding, often based on your tradition, based on your upbringing. My encouragement to you, as it always is, is to go back to the Scriptures. Go back to this passage. Go back to other passages in the Bible that talk about communion. Read them for yourselves and ask those questions. What is happening when we take this meal and what does this mean for our children? If you want to pick up this conversation, by the way, parents, with Biffy and Roland in particular, our children and our youth pastor, please do that. We've talked about it as a staff team, and we're just very happy to carry on these conversations. I know there's different dimensions to this, and this might be the first time some of you are starting to think in these ways. So keep thinking, keep grounded in Scripture, keep talking to one another about it. So as we approach the table this morning, as we come to the Lord's Supper, I want to encourage you to just take a couple of moments and just picture yourself in that scene. To just imagine yourself there on the night of the Last Supper. Imagine yourself sitting around the table there with Jesus and the other disciples. And just imagine him offering the bread and then offering the cup one by one to his disciples. Imagine him offering it to Judas. Judas who's already got it in his heart to betray Jesus who's already sold Jesus out and is about to go and carry out that plan, and yet Jesus turns to Judas and says, take and eat. This is my body, broken for you, Judas. Think about Peter. Peter, who's about to go out into the night and deny Jesus three times, his Lord, his rabbi, his master, disavow any knowledge of Jesus, and yet Jesus turns to Peter and says, Peter, take and eat. This is my body. This is my blood. And then Jesus turns to you. And the reality is, we are all Judas. We're all Peter. We're all betrayers of our Lord. We don't come to the table because we are good Christians. We come to the table because we're hopeless Christians. And we desperately need the grace of God every second of our lives. That's why we take it every week here at Shaw. You may be wondering, why do we do this every week? The deal is that the week we stop sinning is the week we stop taking communion every week. So when that day comes for you, just let me know and we'll stop it right there. The week hasn't happened for me yet, but the week I stop sinning, I'll stop taking communion. But I need this reminder of what Christ has done for me. I need this reminder of how utterly dependent I am on the mercy of my Savior. I need this hope of eternity planted in my heart afresh each week, and I need a fresh encounter with the grace of the risen Jesus in my life every week. I need it, and so do you, right? We do. We need communion to constantly, constantly remind us that we are great sinners, but Christ is a great Savior. So I encourage you, as you come to the table this morning, to allow your mind and your heart to roam back and forth between past and present, and future. Allow your mind to go back to the cross, back to the Last Supper, all the way back to the Exodus. Allow your mind and your heart to be pulled forward to new creation, to the kingdom, to the banquet that is coming. And allow yourself to hear Jesus speaking to you in the present those profound and mysterious words Take and eat. This is my body, broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. This morning as we go to the tables, we're going to have our elders just standing beside the tables and they'll be holding the tray with the bread on it. 
And I don't in any way mean to suggest that our elders are Jesus. But they're just going to be standing there with the bread because sometimes it can be helpful to receive the Lord's Supper from a person because it reminds us that this meal is personal and relational. And it can be helpful to, to have a person just, just be there. And so they'll be holding that, and you still take the bread, but they'll just be holding that tray, and they may say to you, the body of Christ, just to remind you what this is about. And then you can take the cup to the side. And so in your own time, if you want to just come back and sit down, if you want to just come up to the front here and just be by the cross for a while, you can do that. This is your time to be with Christ and encounter his grace, past, present, and future. Let me pray as we prepare our hearts for this. Jesus, we love just thinking about the way in which your whole story is put together and just the beauty of the way that you've ordained this, God, that you knew right back from the Exodus when you were giving Moses those commands about the Passover lamb. God, you had your eye on Jesus. Over a millennia later, you had your eye on the Last Supper. You had your eye on today and how we were going to be here. And we'd share in this meal. And you've connected it all together for us, God, in an amazing way. It's all connected. It's all related. And we can barely even take it in. But I thank you, God, that you know how frail we are. You know how difficult it is for us to grasp your grace. And even though we can say, yes, Jesus loves me, we often don't really internalize that, God. You, you know, you look into our hearts and you see. We don't often live out of that deep place. And we just want to thank you that you've given us this meal as a way of just drinking in your grace afresh, feasting on your love afresh, remembering, celebrating, participating. And so we pray, God, that this morning, as we share your supper together, that our eyes would be opened and that we would see you, Jesus, as we've never seen you before. We pray it for your sake. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.